semantics or how you say what you say is critically important here. Um, you have to really think about your words um, to make it palatable for the person. Hi, I'm Bobby, a certified caregiving consultant, a certified caregiving educator, a caregiver support group leader, and I was a caregiver for my father-in-law, Roger, for seven years. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and a certified music therapist. And this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. Here we focus on the caregiver, offer some practical insights, and share some emotional support. And we might even share a laugh or two, because we all know laughter is, in fact, the best medicine. And don't forget the wine, Mike. Now, have I ever forgot your wine? Uh, no, <laughs> I, I don't think that you have, and, and, and I appreciate that. so from your perspective as a cce right a care certified caregiver educator how important is providing training and education to care professionals and the caregivers well you know with people being diagnosed more and more people being diagnosed with one of the many forms of dementia every single day that only that not only means more people need care, but more people are walking into the caregiving world. And unfortunately, far too many of them don't know what, what to expect going forward. Uh, a lot of people think of Alzheimer's, for instance, as, as a memory problem, not understanding that, you know, this is a devastating brain disease that can affect far more than memory. So absolutely education is so important. And that brings us to today's guest. She's a licensed clinical social worker and is the Family and Community Service Director at Banner Alzheimer's Institute and Banner Sun Health Research Institute. She has spent more than 20 years serving the needs of patients and families coping with the emotional, cognitive, and behavioral problems. She provides training and education to professionals patients, and caregivers on topics relating to memory changes, movement disorders, and behavioral health issues. Please welcome to our show, Lori Neeson. Welcome, Lori. Thank you, Bobby, for that nice introduction, and nice to meet you both today. Nice to be met, <laughs> as I like to say. <laughs> so I'm sure you agree with me that education for people who are, you know, going to be caregivers, whether they're family caregivers or professional caregivers, is absolutely critical as, you know, this other worldwide pandemic grows daily. Yeah, I certainly agree with you. I mean, the, the people and families who are living with dementia that tend to live well with the disease um, really do um, get adequate education, support, and link to resources in their community that can help uh, them live a better quality of life. What what do you find most important for people to to uh, learn early on, and then perhaps, you know, mid stage and then end stage? You know, I think early on it's really about making sure that the person who has a diagnosis of Alzheimer's or related dementias has an opportunity to um, put their advanced directives in order and to share with uh, their power of attorney and family around them what they would want as the disease progresses. Um, I think really for all families, whether we're in the early or moderate or advancing stage, 
one of the things that has been really, I think, life-changing for family members is to understand the changes that come with the disease, what to expect, um, and the critical importance of getting support um, and, and uh, resources as the disease progresses. One topic that has been, um, I think, critically helpful for me as a therapist and a clinical social worker um, is really the uh, concept of ambiguous loss. And when I have explained what that means and how it plays out for people in early stage memory loss, as well as for family caregivers, I think it can really be life-changing in how people live this journey. You know, it's interesting. The first thing that you said is it's important to do the powers of attorney and those type of legal documents very early on. And we stress that all the time. And I will say that doing research uh, for the show, I noticed that there is a great YouTube video on the Banner website or off of the Banner website or the Banner YouTube page on exactly that. And it's about an hour and 15 minutes long, I believe, but it's really comprehensive. And I would like to say to our listeners, if you can, go get that information. It's good information. Yeah, Mike, I think that class um, called Planning Ahead is really um, critical. Yes. It helps people understand um, what advanced directives are, how meaningful they can be, how it can really mitigate a crisis later on. And so, yeah, I think getting education around that and learning in your own state um, what the advanced directives are, and typically they're on an attorney general or secretary of state website. And um, if you have a complex estate or plan, you certainly can use an elder law attorney, but for many people, they can just download the documents for their own state um, and get them notarized, and then they have, you know, advanced directives in place. Yes, uh, absolutely agree. Now, we heard the term ambiguous loss um, in another um, setting very recently. Um, so I would be really interested, and I hope our listeners will be too, if you could explain what that means and how it applies to their caregiving time. Absolutely, Bobby. Um, ambiguous loss is a term that was coined by a psychologist who's now in her 80s, Dr. Pauline Boss. And she really coined the term um, early in her career, actually as part of her dissertation in graduate school, to really kind of describe absence and presence at the same time. And then later in her career, um, in 2011, in fact, um, she really applied it specifically to dementia. And so um, really what ambiguous loss means is that you're dealing with a loss with um, a person who is physically present, but psychologically or emotionally changed or absent. And so I think this theory, and Dr. Boss obviously agrees because she wrote a book on it in 2011, um, it really does apply um, and make a lot of sense for family caregivers of people with dementia, as well as um, I've explained the principle, frankly, to many people who have early memory loss but have insider awareness into their illness. And so what is happening for many family caregivers is that their person is physically the same and here and present, but psychologically and emotionally different. And that can create a lot of challenges in the relationship 
as roles change and as the person with dementia is less able to um, be reciprocal in their support and connection um, with um, their care partner. I think that it's one of the hardest things, even in our situation, um, is trying to connect what's real today to the image you had of this person years ago. And if you're dealing with a parent who, you know, they were the person that protected you and comforted you and educated you, and, and that's, that's your vision of them. And you may see them physically aging, but when this cognitive decline comes and the behaviors are so different, trying to match that to the person that you knew and loved is devastating. You're absolutely right. And I think often it's that phenomenon that you're talking about, kind of grieving the person as they once were. Um, sometimes caregivers get stuck there. And so they feel very immobilized in their caregiving journey. And often caregivers I've had the pleasure of working with many over the years share that they feel like they're on an emotional roller coaster. Um, They feel kind of stuck in this grief and anger, often anger at the disease um, because their person is not quite the same as they once were. And so what happens is, is that they often, um, feel very angry, resentful, sad, frustrated. And I've had experiences where I've introduced this concept and principle and family caregivers often have this aha moment. You're not crazy. You're not on a roller coaster. This is relational. This is ambiguous loss. And just helping people identify what they're experiencing and then learn the strategies to cope with this ambiguous loss can be really powerful. Okay, so can you give us an example of some of those coping strategies? Yeah, so I think um, you have to name the problem. So there, you know, there is knowledge in um, and comfort in kind of putting a name or a finger to something. And people often have experienced this just in getting a diagnosis with dementia. You mentioned earlier that many people now are more and more often getting a diagnosis um, for the disease. However, we know that actually less than 50% of people with dementia ever get a diagnosis before they die. So people are often kind of lost, lost and wondering what's going on, what's going on with me, but more often than not, it's their family member that's, that's, kind of puzzled at these changes. So putting a name to something can be, you know, critically important in figuring out how to get help for yourself. And so on the emotional side of this caregiving journey, um, putting a name to ambiguous loss can really be powerful in helping the person identify what's happening, understand these role changes that are happening, and recognize that, um, you know, while it's important to grieve as you go, because we know there are many losses with this journey, right? You know, as the person is no longer able to uh, take care of themselves functionally, um, as the person was walking and now they're using a walker and maybe in the more moderate advanced stages using a wheelchair, um, we're kind of grieving those losses. But if we get stuck there, um, it's, it's this idea that we're missing out on our person's best day, right? And so we have to kind of grieve our losses, but we also have to be uh, grateful for what we still have. Um, and most of us just in life, right? We spend most of our time either 
uh, worrying about what we didn't do or how things used to be yesterday, worrying about how we're going to manage tomorrow, that we completely miss out on the present. And so what ambiguous loss teaches us and Dr. Boss's principles really teach us that Number one, we can name the problem ambiguous loss. Number two, we have to kind of change the way we think about things, right? So what's difficult about this disease is that we don't have control over it. You know, um, we don't have a way to stop or... Boy, is that true? We don't have a way to stop or arrest the disease, right? We don't have a magic pill um, to cure the disease or bring the person back to who they once were. The only thing we have control over is our perception and how we decide we're going to deal with that. And so the journey is very ambiguous. It's very confusing. You know, many people come into my office or the psychiatrist or neurologist that I'm working with and say, well, what are our next steps? What's going to happen next? How long will this last? Um, And we can give them generalities, but, you know, each person with Alzheimer's or related dementia is unique, right? So we, we don't have all the answers. And so that creates a lot of ambiguity. And so really what Dr. Boss advises is that we have to find meaning in the relationship as it is, right? So often care partners, you mentioned, you know, if you're taking care of a parent, you know, often adult children say, you know, I feel more like a parent than a child here. So there's a lot of role changes Mm -hmm. that happen. Yes. So you can be two things at one time. You can be, you can be a child and a caregiver, right? So you have to kind of stop thinking in this, um, you know, one way focus of identity, you can have more than one identity in a relationship. And she's, I know, Mike sometimes talks about the change, you know, from the very powerful, physically strong uh, man that he was in awe of becoming this frail, very needy person was difficult for him to wrap his head around. And we also have situations where somebody who is just so sweet and kind, like me, uh, turning into (laughs) this raving lunatic, you know, who's cursing and accusing people of stealing from them and all of that, uh, you have to step back. And I often did with my father-in-law, thinking, which one is the real person? Was he hiding this, this less than desirable side all these years that's now coming out or is the real person who I knew before. And I struggled with that. Yeah. So I think you're right. Yes. And one of the things I struggled with was my dad was absolutely brilliant, right? He did calculus in his head. He had a master's degree by the time he was 20 years old. I I mean, this was a, a brilliant man, but then later on he couldn't deal with the had trouble dealing with the here and now and two minutes ago and um, an instruction two minutes ago he couldn't remember two minutes later and it gave me the feelings of you know is is he kind of you know messing with me or what you know and and so I had I wish I would have had a lot of this information 12 or 18 years ago with dealing with my dad that we're coming to today because it really caused me a lot of heartburn because there was this guy and then here was this character, if you will, of that guy. And it really messed with me a lot. See, and that's where the whole thing about the education becomes critical in, in reaching right. people before they get to that point. Right. Absolutely. And I think you bring up a couple of really important points here, Mike. One is that 
um, you know, the person is declining um, both cognitively uh, from a behavioral standpoint, as well as functionally and physically. And so that in itself is really difficult when you're dealing with multiple losses. And then secondly, what I think is so unique about Alzheimer's disease is that there's this lack of awareness most, most often on the person with dementia. So, you know, earlier or in the moderate stage of the disease, you might be saying to your dad, you know, we really need to get you some help here because you're having some falls and you've been calling me late at night. And um, I just want to make sure that you're getting really good care. And the person has little, often little or no awareness. So they're saying, I, I don't know what, what you're talking about. I am doing just fine. I'm doing the same that I was last year or the year before. And so that creates a lot of conflict. Um, you might be saying, oh, you know, yeah. you didn't pay your, your mortgage last month. And so don't worry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help make sure that those bills get paid. What are you talking about? I have never missed a bill in my entire life. You're making that up. Why are you trying to get in my bank book? Stay out of my finances. And so um, that was so difficult because if we were talking about cancer here, certainly it wouldn't be pleasant and there's a difficult journey ahead, but we can sit down and have a conversation about it and we're on the same page. But what happens is this awareness and rational thinking changes. And so you're not able to have those kinds of discussions that you might otherwise in another disease state. Remember your dad thought he was, he was an excellent driver he, yeah. he still had his driver's license that he hadn't from used the 60s. from the 60s, <laughs> hadn't driven for years because he was on a number of uh, medication. Now, he didn't try to drive, and I know some people do, but he was fully convinced that, that he could still do that. Yeah, and I think that's, that's exactly what I mean when I say there's this lack of awareness. So family caregivers often think the person's in denial of the disease. But that's not the case. So denial is something that happens when you're drinking a lot of alcohol and hiding it, right? You know that you're drinking too much and it's becoming a problem, but you're hiding it from other people. This is different. There's actually a psychological term called anosognosia, and it means that you just have absolutely no awareness into the, into the problem. And that's because this is a brain disease, right? So it affects your frontal lobe. So your ability to have good judgment, good insight, and awareness is impaired. And so when, when I say I'm paying my bills just fine, I've never missed a bill in my life, or you know, I'm driving just fine, I've never had a ticket in my life, um, I really believe that. It's not that I'm trying to deny the problem, I just am not aware of these changes. And that is often what makes the caregiving so difficult and creates conflict. Mike? So I, on the Banner website, I noticed that you conduct um, research studies, and on there, there is a category of treatment studies and also non-treatment studies. And I was wondering if you could uh, explain what is a treatment study, what is a non-treatment study, how they come together, how they go yeah, apart. Yeah, so we actually have prevention trials. So we have um, almost 400,000 people that have signed up on our Alzheimer's Prevention Registry, um, because they're, they have had a family member who's had the disease um, or just really interested in finding a way to cure or prevent the disease. And so 
Uh, we have lots of prevention research that's going on. And then we certainly have research around um, medications and the efficacy of a medication, either preventing or stopping or slowing down the disease. And then we also have studies about interventions. So what interventions um, work and don't work? So specific to ambiguous loss, our team developed a group therapy model for family caregivers around ambiguous loss called Steps to Hope. And we did a research study using more than 90 family caregivers uh, before and after uh, the program. It's a five-week program. Um, we had caregivers uh, take some measurement, uh, use some measurement instruments to kind of rate how they're doing. And then afterwards, we did with the we administered the same tools. And we found, for example, in that study that uh, caregivers had lowered levels of stress and burden when they learned oh, about ambiguous loss, right? When they learned about ambiguous loss and they learned about the strategies that they need to use to stay well themselves. So I always say um, family and community services and social work is my background. Um, so while my colleagues who are researchers are looking to find a way to prevent or end this disease, we are really trying to find the best interventions to provide the most effective help for people and families living with this disease. Because at this point, as for all of us as we age, right, it's all about quality of life, not necessarily quantity. Right. Now, um, one of the other things I saw, and I believe it was a presentation that you did, and it was ways to gently prompt hand washing, especially now with the COVID, right? Wash your hands, wash your hands. Um, could you uh, share that with our listeners? Yeah, so I think, um, well, let me just say that I think that because there is still so much stigma with Alzheimer's and related dementias that many uh, people living with the disease and their care partners, caregivers are incredibly isolated. Um, you throw a pandemic on top of that, and families living with this disease are incredibly isolated, right? So they're, they're trying to balance the care of taking care of their person with dementia. They're trying to um, keep them safe from the pandemic. And then again, you have someone who has short-term memory loss. So I might have told you about what's happening in the world with the pandemic and what we need to do to stay safe, but you're not, if you have dementia, you're not going to remember that. And secondly, I have to have this balance of making sure that I'm giving you some safety protocols, but I don't want to frighten you either, right? Because you might kind of get stuck on that and perseverate about it. So I think it's this fine balance of just being brief and sharing an explanation. You know, there's, there's a, a pandemic going on, there's a virus. And so it's really important for us to do the best thing that we can to stay safe. And that's hand washing. So let's wash our hands together. Or before we eat, you know, let's, let's take a, a spritz or a spray of this um, antibacterial um, gel so that we can make sure that we're, we're staying safe and well. So I think it's keeping those the things. Suggestion of, I love the suggestion of let's wash our hands together. Be, and, and, mm -hmm. and that transfers a lot of times when there's resistance to eating. If, mm -hmm. if we sit down and we eat together, there you know, somebody with dementia is, is more willing to do that. But with the hand washing, I think that's a great suggestion. Yeah, I think it's a good practice, as you say, with lots of different activities. 
um, because what happens here is that sometimes the behaviors that are associated with dementia make the person um, seem childlike. And so sometimes the behaviors and reactions of the person with dementia seem that way, but the person is still an adult and uh, deserves to be treated with respect. And so that's one approach that we use to try to align with that person instead of always scolding or telling that person what to do. We say, let's do this together. We both could benefit from it. Absolutely. And, and another issue, it's, it's not quite what we were just talking about, but the um, tendency to talk about incontinence uh, where as diapers for adults you know, and, you know, I tell people it's either underwear or briefs or panties, whatever they called them before. We don't want to start talking about adults wearing diapers. Absolutely. So your point is well taken. Um, semantics or how you say what you say is critically important here, whether you're trying to provide um, underwear or a brief or whether you're trying to shower or get cleaned up. Um, you have to really think about your words um, to make it palatable for the person. The same thing with adult daycare. I'm not sure why anyone thought that was a good idea, right? Life enrichment <laughs> is a much better approach or a volunteer activity because, frankly, I don't want to be in adult daycare, and probably, Bobby, you don't either. So you're right. The language no, at I... which we make suggestions or gently um, recommend or even directly um, encourage are really important. It took me a long time to even admit I was old enough to belong to the senior center, let alone adult daycare. <laughs> Point well taken. <laughs> and I have and, no, and... I have no problem telling people that I am seventy-one years old, but I am I'm not a child. I don't need to go to daycare, and the people at the um, senior center always seem at least ten years older than me. <laughs> And and contrary to that, I couldn't wait to sign up <laughs> because there's so many activities there that uh, when I retired, I said, I want to do this. It's inexpensive. And let me go over there and I can shoot pool and I can do all these things that I can't do here at the house. I can play ping pong with somebody. So I was excited to do it. And she's like, uh, doing the Heisman, <laughs> right? But, and holding it but at I, arm's I length. I do go there, but I go there as a volunteer. I don't go yes. there. <laughs> As a member, I'm in denial. <laughs> I'm aware, but I'm in denial. <laughs> now, one of the things that struck me is really interesting. And again, I said at the beginning that I'm uh, a music therapist and I'm also a musician is you have your B Sharp Wellness Program. And I thought that was absolutely fascinating um, that the folks go out and have interaction with the local symphony? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So we, uh, our team really focuses on providing um, education, support, outreach, and life enrichment. So as part of our life enrichment activities, we, um, over the years, have partnered with many arts organizations um, to really provide um, programs that are adult in nature, but um, also are adapted to um serving the best needs and engagement of people and families with dementia. So um, that's a program that was developed many years ago to really um, help people with dementia and care partners um, enjoy the symphony at a palatable pace. Um, over the last year, actually, we've moved two of our life enrichment programs uh, 
as a result of the pandemic to a virtual means. And so we have a, a program that is going uh, very strong right now called Shine Your Light Choir. And it is a choir specifically for um, persons with early to moderate dementia and their care partners. And we do that um, audio virtually. And it has been just a wildly successful program. The other program that we recently developed um, a few years ago um, is called Passport to Music. And we originally partnered with um, the Musical Instrument Museum. And if you ever get to Phoenix, you should definitely check it out. It's really an impressive place. Um, we created a program whereby the whole museum would be completely overwhelming to somebody with dementia and their care partner. Um, it's too big. It's too overwhelming. And so we really uh, trained all of their, uh, a handful, I should say, of their docents to understand dementia. So we bring what we know best, which is dementia. They bring what they know best, which is music and history. And we trained their uh, team to really understand dementia and how to apply appropriate communication principles and how to really kind of simplify what they're explaining and make it very engaging. And so each week we would take a different part of the museum, a different continent or even country, and really just talk very briefly about the music in that country. We would um, show them the instruments and then we would often offer something that was experiential in nature. So for example, we offered um, a passport to music on Africa and we had an African drumming uh, expert come and kind of talk a little bit about the drums and then we actually had an opportunity to play. And so we've, we've pivoted, pivoted that program as many people have had to pivot uh, during this unusual time. And we're actually doing that virtually. So focusing on a particular country, a particular style of music, and then in getting people engaged in um, singing or playing an instrument, uh, something, a simple um, item that they might have at home, like I use macaroni <laughs> to play an instrument uh, to make it, um, you know, really engaging for that person and family. Because we know that the center of the brain that, um, uh, that enjoys or can actually play or sing music is protected. And so these life enrichment programs around the arts are particularly important uh, to keep the person and family living with dementia engaged um, and giving them a sense of pleasure in the moment. Well, Mike can certainly talk about using items around the house as musical instruments, because as a lifelong drummer, he, he didn't start off on drums. <laughs> no, I didn't. I started off on coffee cans with knitting needles or crochet needles. And my mother was constantly yelling at me, where's my pot lid for such and such? And where's my lid for the frying pan? And because uh, it wasn't nailed down, I was using it. <laughs> you know, as <laughs> until you, I got, go ahead. Until I got my first drum set. And then all bets were off. <laughs> as, as Lori was talking about this program, I, I kept thinking, boy, Mike would love to be there. Mike would love to do that. Um, yes, I would. Yes, I would. Um, and and it's, it was fascinating. Now, I suspect that it probably would be a tremendous paradigm shift. It was a care facility that was doing this as opposed to individuals with their care partner. Um, so for a facility to have a, a program like this, uh, the B-flat program, now with the pandemic that they just can't go out and the folks at the orchestra can't interact on a personal one-to-one -one level. Um, yeah, absolutely. The challenges are, 
are phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say my colleague um, at um, Arizona State University, Dr. David Kuhn, who has done a lot of research around caregiving, uh, he uh, did some research um, last year and, and exactly did what you're mentioning. He brought um, a small band to a long-term care facility and um, did some measurements of, of how people were doing um, more observationally prior to um, interfacing with the band and um, afterwards. And it was really incredible how um, the person's uh, mood in the moment really changed when they were um, engaging in music and actually had live music present. And it's interesting, you know, if you have a choice of throwing on a CD or turning on the radio, you turn on your favorite station for your favorite genre. But when it comes to live music, for the most part, it doesn't matter what the genre is. It's that live and in the moment. Um, and, uh, you know, you may hate country music or the country music station, but if it's a country music band playing live, you get into the pulse, the beat, and it touches inside that something on a CD player or on your iPod or MP3 player doesn't do. Um, it's, it's fascinating how, th- how that works. Yeah. I think absolutely um, that live music certainly has um, can have a greater impact, but I would encourage folks not, not to turn away from, you know, the boom box or the computer, because I think um, as we see with dementia, as the person's abilities change, television is less relevant and maybe can even be disturbing as the person is really having a tr- hard time keeping the pictures separate, or maybe it really f- feels like someone's in the room. Um, and you turn off the television and play some music, maybe um, music that that person really enjoyed growing up or in their young adult right. life. And you really do see um, the mood and the affect and engagement change. Yeah, don't, uh, I know for a fact, don't rule out DVDs. Um, my dad was an opera fan, and we would throw on a, a DVD of Andrea Bocelli, and he just lit up just watching it and hearing it and having the visual and audio uh, stimulation. And, you know, that's what he grew up with in Italy. And so it was so uh, amazing. And if he was down, it picked him up. If he was anxious or agitated, it brought him down. It was kind of like the super pill, if you will. I agree. Uh, and, and before I joined Banner, I did a lot of behavioral health and dementia care consulting. And I would go into facilities and, you know, they're trying to structure some of their activity programs. And, you know, I really encourage people to use music for the mood you want. So in the morning, you might want to play a rumba. You want to play something that's going to really get people up and going and excited. Mm -hmm. And in the evening, you might want to play um, some really soft jazz or environmental sound. Cool jazz, yeah. yeah. So I think you're right. It really can make a big impact. (laughs) Right. Wow, um, this is this has been very invigorating for me. I really enjoyed our conversation, um, uh, Bobby. Well, I am so glad that that we found you in your organization and um, learning about the programs that you have available and, and that a number of them are virtual. I'm sure they're going to be um, an asset to our listeners. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us today. Yeah, and thank you yes, so I... much for having me. I'd say, you know, 
most of our um, online resources on our banneralz.org website. They're free and open to anyone. We have a newsletter that comes out. We have, as um, Mike was saying, we have a lot of recorded um, webinars and videos. And then if you're really interested in learning more about ambiguous loss, um, Dr. Pauline Boss wrote a book called Loving Someone Who Has Dementia. And I think it would be really valuable to consider purchasing that book. I, I don't own any stock in it um, on Amazon or your local bookseller, because I think it's really a powerful book for family caregivers who are really trying to manage the emotional side of caregiving. Well, we'll be happy to put links to any of that um, yes. that you sent to us on our website. So when people listen to you, they'll have uh, they'll, those links available to them. Excellent. Yes, they will be uh, prominently on the Roger That uh, webpage. Okay, I think one of my big takeaways was play the music for the mood you want. I love that. Yeah, yes. And, and I guess right, right off the top, we talked about power of attorney and, you know, there's multiple powers of attorney. But the powers of attorney are important at the beginning. When you get that diagnosis, get it done and um, work it. And uh, the other thing was the talk about ambiguous loss and more specifically that it means absence and presence at the same time. And when she first said that, I wanted to reach up and scratch my head. How could you be here and not here at the same time? But her explanation of, you're physically here, but cognitively you're not. And it was like, aha, <laughs> I got it. I get it. And that's so why that was we kind do of what a, we do. It, it, yeah. <laughs> and I probably learn as much from these um, podcasts as anybody. Um, but those are the two real big things that that I took away. And I can't recommend to the listeners enough to go to the banner YouTube page or to the website and, and look at their YouTube presentations because they are so very informative. Okay, you can find more information about Lori and the Banner Alzheimer's Institute on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That, I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please subscribe to the show, go to iTunes, post a review, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. To find out more about us, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show. Missing Link is a proud partner of Hearing Charities of America a nonprofit organization that supports those who are deaf or hard of hearing. You can find out more about HCA on our website or go to hearingcharities.org. Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content.